0: You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Uh, this evening we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 9 as we continue our study of First John called Simple Truths. And as we've seen, John repeats himself over and over and over again for us. But every time he repeats himself, he goes a little bit deeper uh, every time. Uh, so let's First John chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. And as you guys have noticed, this is family worship week, right? The, the last week of every month where we have the kids up here. And kids, we are super glad you guys are here with us. Not that you are listening. It's cool. Uh, I love you anyway. Uh, but again, parents, I say this every time, and I'm probably going to continue to say this. Don't freak out. Your kids are going to like, squirm around a little bit. Might have to go to the bathroom. That's completely acceptable. Um, it's been really great the last couple months we've done this, like, both from parents and uh, people who don't even have children in our congregation, um, saying that they've really enjoyed having the kids up here. I look forward to it. I like it. Um, but kids, right? You're not listening to me. I need you guys to try to pay attention to a little bit of this sermon, okay? Try to pay attention to just a few little things as we listen along, as you guys follow along to what I'm saying, uh, because I think you guys will be able to understand some of what I'm talking about. I understand you won't be able to hear it all or understand it all, but you guys can pick up something. Uh, And parents, as I understand, a lot of this stuff's going to go over your kids' heads. Let me implore you once again, as I did last month, it's really on you to teach your children what was taught this evening right? As it is every week, it's on you. Um, So ask your kids questions about the sermon, or just if they're young, really young, tell them one basic truth from the sermon that you took and talk it out with them, right? Do something. Just teach your children about Christ is what I'm getting at. Train them up. Uh, And A bit of a side note here, Uh, do we have any members of our church who did not receive the family worship book that I gave out? All right, so I'm, 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 I'm batting a good average right on. Uh, so in light, of, in light of those books that I gave you, thinking about this being Family Worship Week, start a, a daily time of family worship with your, with your kids or, or, or just your wife or whatever. Um, take some time daily and, and read the scriptures together, pray together, discuss the things of God just for a short time every day. I would really encourage you to do that, especially if you have children. It's on you, parents. Raise your kids in the faith. Uh, but tonight, we're in 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. And I won't lie to you guys, this text, if you've already looked at it, is really, really, really strange. Uh, whenever you first read through it. Uh, the first line of the first commentary that I read this week as I was studying this passage said, this is one of the most perplexing passages in the entire New Testament. So I knew I was set up for a really easy week on preparing a sermon. Uh, it was good times, one of the most perplexing passages in the New Testament. Um, so as always, whenever I'm preaching through a, a a difficult text uh, that there is dispute on, or, or good theologians are kind of in disagreement on the finer points. Uh, whenever I preach through that, those kinds of texts, I just want to invite you guys to talk to me about this text. If I say anything that you think is, is not quite what the text was getting at, um, and I'll direct you to resources to further your study, or we can just talk about it after the sermon or at some other point. So again, I invite you, bring it on. Let's talk about this text uh, if you're interested in going a little bit deeper. Uh, but so far in this letter, John has been answering three big questions. Right? And the first one is, is who is Jesus? Right? The second is, how should a believer live? And the third is, how can I know that I'm saved? Right? Again, I think John addresses some other stuff as well, but I think those are his three big questions. Who is Jesus? How should I live if I follow Jesus? And how can I know that I'm a Christian? How can I know that I'm saved? But the verses that we're getting ready to look at here in a moment uh, are concerned with answering that first question. Who is Jesus? Right, now John wants us, one of the reasons he writes this letter, is because he wants us to thoroughly know exactly who Jesus is. And this letter is coming to a close, right? We're in the last chapter of the letter. And John wants us, uh, one last big push, he wants us to have a high Christology, Christology is just beliefs about Christ, doctrine concerning Christ. He wants us to have a very high view of Jesus. So he pushes at the end of this letter, this is who Jesus is. Now in John's day, uh, he was fighting heretics. There were many false Christs being preached at John's time. And the same goes for us today. There's many different Jesuses being preached in many different churches. Although there's only the one Christ, there's the biblical Christ Um, But it was a problem for John, and it's a problem for us, right, people preaching false Christs. So in light of that, these kind of foundational truths, who is Jesus really, are always beneficial for the people of God to go back over regularly, right, always, because so long as there is a church, there are going to be antichrists and false Christs being proclaimed. Right, so this is something we always want to go back to, is answering this question, who is Jesus? And I say that because if you're like me, and you already know most of the stuff and I'm getting ready to preach, you might tune out, I beg you, do not turn your nose up to the, to the core doctrines of our faith. Just because you've heard it before, don't turn your nose up to it. The Bible keeps repeating these same basic truths over and over and over again, because they're absolutely essential for us to get a solid grasp on and to be reminded of. But before we dig into the text, I'll give you guys my thesis statement. This is kind of where we're driving at this evening. If I could sum up this whole sermon in a couple of sentences, it's this We must believe in the whole Son of God, the whole Christ, not a partial Christ, not a half Christ. We must believe in the whole Christ. And also, God Himself has given testimony. That the Jesus that John preaches, the Jesus that John writes about, is indeed the Son of God we must believe in. All right, so with that said, let's read the text, first John chapter five, verses six through nine. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. That you inspire, that you breathed out. That are good to build us up. So that we would be whole and complete in Christ. Lacking nothing, being equipped for every good work. God, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to work alongside the word this evening. To build us up, the believers that are here. To equip us. And if there are unbelievers in our midst, that they would see the glory of Christ in the text this evening, that they would see the whole Christ and they would repent and trust in Him. But for those of us who already know this Jesus that John preaches, give us greater boldness, greater confidence that indeed He is the Son of God, that indeed He is the Christ, that we would be emboldened in our faith, knowing in whom we have believed. Please do a sovereign work of grace here this evening. We are utterly dependent upon You to change our hearts and to increase our faith. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Strengthen us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now I didn't put this in my notes, uh, but as I was reading through the text, I just realized something. Uh, if you're using the New King James Version, or if, you're, if you grew up with the King James Version, you probably noticed that verse 7 in the English Standard Version is A third of the size as verse 7 in the King James Version and let me just explain that one real quick so you guys don't think that the ESV is like this demonic translation like a lot of churches I've heard preach Uh, (laughs) the King James Bible has a bit in verse 7 that says and these three bear witness in heaven the Father the Word and the Spirit and there are three witnesses on earth the Spirit the water and the blood and these three agree anyone remember that from the King James that's what I'm talking about I grew up in that church too um, King James is fine, just got some problems. Um, reason why that's not found in, in our text this evening is because the earliest manuscripts that we have with that big long verse 7 are from the 11th century. And the oldest Greek manuscript we have with that in it is from the 15th century. So we are incredibly certain that John didn't actually write that and that it was actually inserted into some manuscripts that were then used in the translation of the King James Bible. King James is still fine. Read it if you want. The Puritans did it. It feels good enough for Spurgeon. It's good enough for me. Um, But that is a problem. That's not actually in there. The King James actually got that one wrong. Just wanted to address that in case anyone's got some issues with that. We can talk about that. We can fight in the parking lot. It'll be good. Um, But anyhow, let's get into this. In verse 5, John said that overcomers believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In verse 5, he said... uh, And who is it that overcomes the world except the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's what he says in verse 5. So we must believe in Jesus. But my question is, who is this Jesus that John preaches? In verses 1 through 5 of the fifth chapter that we're in, John has stated the necessity of faith, that we must have faith in Jesus. But now John is going to tell us more about the object of our faith. Right? We don't have faith just for the sake of faith. We place our faith in something or someone more specifically. So he's going to tell us more about the object of our faith, Jesus. He's going to identify him. But the first half of verse six says this, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Right, so let's break that down a little bit. And again, most of this is review. We've talked about this many times, that, word, or that that phrase, Jesus Christ. All right, so this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. As we've noted in weeks past, uh, this is always how John refers to the full identity of Jesus. In his gospel, in his other writings, whenever John wants to refer to the full man as well as the anointed eternal son of God, he says Jesus Christ. This is without exception in John's writing. It's what he always gets at. It's his favorite way to refer to Jesus, that he is truly God, truly man. So already in the first half of this verse, John is once again stressing to us that the Jesus he preaches is the Messiah. He is the God-man. Right? And this is an essential truth that we cannot forget. And I'm going har- to beat this drum till I die. Jesus must be truly God and truly man if he is going to be the Savior of men. Right? Only a man can represent mankind. Only a person can represent people. Your children are going to learn this next week uh, in children's church. But he must be man if he's going to represent men. And he must be God if he is going to fully satisfy the demands of God. Right, if he's going to make atonement for all of his people, if he's going to perfectly keep the law, he must be truly God. Right, so again, Jesus being the God-man is an utter essential if we're going to believe in the Jesus that John preaches. And so he gets that right off the bat, calling him Jesus Christ. But not only that, he says, this Jesus Christ is the one who came. The first words in this, in this verse, he is the one who came. So again, in, in John's gospel, this Greek phrase, the one who came, I'm not going to worry with trying to pronounce it because I can't. Um, it, this Greek phrase is used in a different tense. Uh, and whenever John uses this phrase, it refers to, quote, the one who is coming into the world. Right? John uses that phrase all the time. Right, the, this, the light is coming into the world, and in John's epilogue, in the first chapter of his gospel, whenever Jesus is talking to one of the sisters of Lazarus, right before he raises Lazarus from the dead, he says, do you believe that I am he? And she goes, yes, I believe that you are the one who is coming into the world. Right, same, very similar Greek phrase as what John says here, for the one who came. So this Jesus who came is not of this world. I believe that's what John's pointing at for how he uses that phrase in his other writings. Jesus is the one who was coming into the world, and indeed, from our perspective, uh, post-incarnation of Christ, he is the one who came. He has a divine origin. He has a heavenly origin. And again, John is stressing the divinity of Jesus. He is God in the flesh, God taken on flesh. Uh, But not only that... um, Whenever John refers to the one who has come into the world throughout his writings, it's always none, no one else except the Messiah, right? It's always the Christ, the anointed one of God. And whenever John refers to the one who is coming into the world, it's always this Messiah who has come to do a redemptive work, right? Always. That's always what John is referring to is the one who has come to redeem his people, Right, So it's not the one who came into the world just for fun, right? who just came to see how's it going down here. It's always the one who came to do a redemptive work. So this Jesus Christ is the Messiah who came to earth on a mission to save the people of God. I would argue we can, we can get that from just the first few words of, of verse 6. He came to redeem his people. Now I set you up with all of that for this reason. Knowing that John has in mind the full redemptive work of Jesus... Right? Again, the one who came into the world, the God man who came into the world. Knowing that that's what John has in mind helps us understand what John means by water and blood. Right? Because that's the weird part of this verse, right? He came by water and blood. What does that mean? But I would argue this that whenever John refers to water and blood, he's talking about the full ministry of Jesus Christ, his full ministry. And I say this because the ministry of Jesus on earth was encompassed by two historical events, his water baptism by John the Baptist and his crucifixion, right? Literally, his, the water and the blood. These are the bookends of his earthly ministry, not counting his resurrection. You could lump that into his crucifixion. Water and blood, the bookends of his earthly ministry. So remember, John is still explaining the identity of Jesus. So we're going to break this down a little bit more. Whenever he says water, as I've said twice now, it's the baptism of Christ. His baptism marked the beginning of his public ministry, right? This is the first time Jesus begins to, it's only after his baptism that he begins to publicly declare that he is indeed the Son of God, right? That he is the Christ who has come into the world. You guys know the story. John the Baptist, right? The final Old Testament prophet, the cousin of Jesus, not to be confused with John the author or John the apostle, but John the Baptist, the final Old Testament prophet, was at the Jordan River preaching a baptism of repentance. Right? Repent. The kingdom is coming. The Messiah is coming. Repent of your sins and prepare your hearts for Him. Is what John is preaching to the people of Israel. But then Jesus came forward to be baptized. Right? And that always kind of strikes us as kind of strange. Why would Jesus be baptized? Now we know that Christ had no sin to repent of. Right? He's always been the God man. He's always been the sinless, spotless son of God. He had no sin to repent of, but in receiving the baptism of John, he is identifying himself with the sinners he has come to save. Right? I need no repentance, but the ones who I've come for Do. All right, Matthew chapter 3, verses 3 through 15 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. Right, John, let him, or John agreed to baptize him. So I think John the Apostle, the writer of this letter, is telling us that this Jesus we must believe in is the Jesus who was baptized and then went on to have an earthly historic ministry in order to fulfill all righteousness for his people. I think that's what he means by this is the one who came by water. And we know that Jesus Christ did exactly that, right? He lived sinlessly in our room instead, as we sang in the song, in the stead of ruined sinners, right? This is exactly what he did. He kept every bit of the law for us in our place, a perfect representative for man, never disobeying God, always living for the glory of God, doing what we humanly could not do, what we weakened by our flesh could not do. Christ did for us, keeping the law, fulfilling all righteousness, beginning at his baptism. But not only that, not only that, and this will all come into play in a little bit. Jesus had an earthly ministry where he did more than obey, than obey the law of God. We guys know we know through reading the Gospels that Jesus Christ went around teaching people what God is really like. He went around teaching us how to live righteously. He showed mercy to the poor and the outcast. He healed the sick by miracles. He preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. He preached the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom is at hand. He proclaimed that he was the son of God. And he preached repentance from sin and faith in himself for salvation. So Jesus did indeed come by water. He was baptized himself and then had an earthly ministry of obedience, healing, and preaching for the people of God. But John says, not by water only. Right? This is the one who came by, by water and blood, but not by water only, but by the water and the blood. Now, why would he say that? Right? Why would he reference water so much? Not water only, but water and blood. I think what John's doing here is he's highlighting what the false teachers of his day were teaching. Right? So apparently, the false teachers of, of John's day accepted that Jesus was baptized And they accepted that he had a public ministry, but they denied that his death had any real significance for anybody, right? Like, they denied his blood. That's why he says, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood also, right? So apparently they accepted his baptism, they accepted his public ministry, but they denied that his blood, that his death had any significance for anyone. That is to say, the false teachers were believing in and preaching a half-Christ, They were only affirming one half of the ministry of Jesus. A half Christ. But John knows, as we do, that a half Christ is really no Christ at all. And John wants us to believe in the whole Christ. So to do that, John emphasizes blood for us, not only by the water, but also by the blood. Let's talk about the ministry of Christ's blood. Not only did Christ have a ministry in his life, but Christ also had an atoning ministry by his death. And John here has mentioned blood, and he's related it to Jesus. right? Against this is blood in reference to Jesus Christ. And what you need to know is that when the blood of Christ is mentioned, it is nearly always and I mean, if there's an exception, you have to show it to me. Like it is nearly always in connection to the forgiveness of sins. Always, Matthew 20, I'll read some stuff for you from Matthew, Romans, Ephesians, and Colossians. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Romans 3, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation, the satisfaction of the wrath of God, purchasing our forgiveness. Romans 5, 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, declared righteous from our sin. Ephesians 1.7 In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Colossians 1.20 And through Him, Jesus, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Whenever the blood of Christ is mentioned, the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation, justification, propitiation for us, all of these things are tied together to the blood of Christ. So John insists that we must believe in the Jesus who by His blood shed on the cross of Calvary achieved the forgiveness of sins for us. Taking our sins upon His back. Making propitiation for us. Satisfying the wrath of Almighty God that we had incurred on ourselves. Making atonement for us. Reconciling us to the God we had rebelled against. We must believe in that Christ. We can never ignore this essential truth of who Jesus is. That he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist said. That is the Jesus we must believe in. So, John has told us the identity of the Son of God that he is the God man, that he is the Messiah. That he is the one who has come into the world with a redemptive mission. The one who was baptized and had an earthly ministry for his people. The one who died to save sinners from the penalty due to them. And we've seen that the heretics only believed that Jesus came by the water. They denied his blood. They believed in a half Christ. And John, again, is saying here, you must believe in the whole Christ Christ. If you're going to know God, if you're going to overcome sin, if you're going to make heaven your home, if you're going to have the forgiveness of sins, you must believe in the whole Christ. So just an aside here, do you believe in the whole Christ? Do you believe in the whole Christ? Many people today affirm the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. But then they turn around and say that His death had no real significance. Right? I, the atonement of Christ. They say, yes, He was crucified. That was an awful thing. He was murdered. Right, that's false. Christ willingly laid down His life. Yes, He was murdered. But He says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And I have the authority to take it back up again. He did this willingly. No one took it from Him. He laid it down. And yet there are people who would deny His atonement. They'll say, yes, it's a, it's a tragedy that such a good teacher was murdered. In the prime of his life, people will deny the necessity of an atonement, saying sin is just kind of a myth, something meant to make you feel bad. Right? You guys have seen that Anglican minister on Facebook saying that sin was a myth invented by the church to keep people down. Have you guys seen that? That guy is annoying. That uh, yeah, dude's not saved. He doesn't read the Bible, apparently. He's, uh, don't mess with the Anglicans. There's a couple of good brothers and sisters in there, but J.I. Packer's cool. By and large, just ignore them. Um, Right, But there are people in liberal strands, in, main, in mainline Christianity, even in the United States, who deny these things. They deny the atonement, the necessity of atonement. And they say Christ was just a great teacher, had an earthly ministry, but His death, His blood did nothing for anybody. Now, I know that this is not a problem for us at Rev. Right? I, I can look out, I, I know I, yeah, all of you, I know all of you, personally. I know that this is not a problem for us. to to deny the blood of Christ having any real significance in our life. No one here believes that. That's not a problem here. And Lord willing, it never will be. And I don't want to spend time harping on something that's not an issue for us. But the question still stands, right? And I just want to reframe this without jacking it too far out of context. Do you believe in the whole Christ? Do you really believe in the whole Christ? And the reason why I I I ask this is because I think we often emphasize certain attributes of Jesus at the expense of others. And in this way, we can believe in a partial Christ. We we would affirm the the life, death, and resurrection. We would affirm the atonement. But nevertheless, at the end of the day, when we lay our head down, we don't have a full-orbed look at Jesus. And what I mean is this. If you're like me, I can get behind the conquering king. Amen? This is good, right? The, the, the rider on a white horse whose name is faithful and true, and out of his mouth comes a sword to strike down the nations, right? That Jesus. I'm behind that guy all day long, but I have a hard time getting behind the Jesus who washed Judas' feet before he betrayed him. Right? Or I'll get behind Jesus who is fair, who is just, right? The one who don't play, I am here to send people away and to bring people and I will give to every man what he has coming to him according to what he has done. I get behind that Jesus, but I have a hard time getting behind the Jesus who says, He who is without sin casts the first stone, the merciful Christ. I want that mercy, but I have a hard time getting behind that merciful Christ sometimes. Or, I know some of you here fall in the other camp where you're all about preaching and following the Jesus who has compassion on sinners, who look out on the crowds and have compassion on them, feeling it in his stomach, saying they're like sheep without a shepherd. The Christ who's brokenhearted for sinners. But you can barely stomach the Christ who says, yes, and unless you repent, you will likewise perish. I know everyone's prone to this just in different ways. We overemphasize certain attributes of Christ at expense of the other ones. But John here, in another context, tells us, no, you must believe in the whole Christ. The whole Christ. Jesus Christ is not one-dimensional, right? I mean, I sometimes want to make him that way. I can get my hands around him a little bit easier. But if you read the Gospels, you'll see you can't do that to this Christ. We must believe in the whole Christ. And I'll say this, just one last thing. We risk becoming idolaters when we have an unbalanced view of Jesus. So I'll leave that with you. Do you believe in the whole Christ? But anyway, back to our text. So John has identified the Jesus that we must believe in. Right? But why should we believe in him? Right? Why should we believe John? John says this is the one. He had an earthly ministry. was crucified for the forgiveness of sins. Why should we believe that John is right? Furthermore, if I want to believe John is right, how can I know that John is right? right, John says this, second half of verse 6, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. So John says that the Holy Spirit corroborates the testimony of water and blood. Basically, John is himself saying, "Right, listen to me, I'm telling you that the water uh, and blood, the baptism and crucifixion of Jesus, point to Jesus being the Son of God. But, don't just take my word on it, God the Holy Spirit testifies to the same thing. That's what he's saying, John is breaking out the big guns, right? He's saying God himself testifies to these things. But how does the Spirit testify to the Jesus that John proclaims? How does the Holy Spirit testify to this Jesus? Well first, the Holy Spirit testified to Jesus all over the place during his time on earth. Right, I got four different ways. first at the baptism of Jesus, right the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit testified by descending upon him and resting on him, right Matthew 3:16 and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like coming to rest on Him. Right? So the Holy Spirit descended upon Christ and rested on Him. This was supernatural. Right? And this is something that only happened to Jesus. This did not happen to anyone else who was baptized by John. So the Holy Spirit is testifying at the baptism of Jesus. This one is unique. He is the one whom the Father has sent. John the Baptist actually says, you can read in the first chapter of John's gospel, he says that God had told him that the Holy Spirit descending upon someone being baptized would be the sign that this one was the Christ. So the Holy Spirit descends upon Christ and testifies, this is the one whom God sent. Second, the Holy Spirit testified to Jesus by the miracles he did. All of the miracles that Jesus Christ performed were empowered by the Holy Spirit. All of them. Or nearly all of them. I don't want to make a blanket statement. I want to study that out further. But Luke's gospel emphasizes this. And empowered by the Holy Spirit, he did this. And empowered by the Spirit, he did that. You can read that all over the place in Luke's gospel. His miracles were evidence that the Holy Spirit was testifying to him. Jesus often referenced his miracles as evidence that he is God's son, Because he knows the Holy Spirit is bearing witness in them. In John chapter 10, he says, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Right, so Jesus all over the place, knowing that the Holy Spirit is testifying to who he is and the miracles he performs, he looks at the Pharisees and says, look, if you don't believe what I'm saying, look at what I've done. Look at what I've done, and you'll know that God is testifying to who I am. And he can say that because if we look throughout biblical history, the Holy Spirit had never before worked the kinds of miracles that Jesus was performing. Not to mention the sheer amount of miracles that Jesus performed. Compare Jesus to everyone else who ever worked a miracle in the Bible. Jesus destroys them in the number of miracles that he did. This is the Holy Spirit saying, this one is special. This one is directly sent from God. This one is the Son of God. Furthermore, just on the Spirit testifying to Christ and his miracles, we can see that whenever people claimed, the Pharisees claimed, that Jesus did his miracles by the power of Satan... Right? They proclaim that Jesus did his miracles by the authority of the devil. Jesus says, you're not blaspheming me, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now why would he say that? It's because Jesus is saying that this Holy Spirit was working in him and verifying his claim to be the Son of God. That's why if you deny his miracles, you're blaspheming what the Holy Spirit says. The Spirit was testifying to who Christ is in his miracles. Thirdly, we can look to the death of Christ. And see the Holy Spirit bearing witness to who He is. As Jesus Christ hangs on the cross, we read that the sky goes black at noon, at midday, in Israel, in the desert. The sky goes utterly black. And at that time, the temple curtain, right in the temple, separating the Holy of Holies from the outer courts, is ripped from the top to the bottom not from the, no man ripped it at the bottom and it worked its way up, but from top to bottom was ripped. As Christ is hanging on the cross, an earthquake hits. And in that earthquake, tombs burst open and formerly dead people begin to walk around Jerusalem. <laughs> right? This was nothing less than the Holy Spirit declaring that it was the Son of God hanging on that cross. That's what the Spirit was proclaiming. And this is made very clear to us. In Matthew's Gospel, whenever a Roman centurion sees the black sky and feels the earthquake and looks up at the cross and says, surely this was the Son of God. The Holy Spirit was testifying in the death of Christ. And last but not least, in His resurrection, the Spirit says that this is the Son of God. Romans 1, four, And Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. So again, the Spirit declared that Jesus is God's Son at His resurrection. So without question, the Holy Spirit of God has testified to who Jesus is in His life, death, and resurrection. But not only that, to get a bit more personal and a bit more contemporary with us today, the Holy Spirit continues to testify. John uses it in the present tense in this passage. He testifies to who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit testifies to us, Christian, testifies to us that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus Christ prophesied this in John chapter 15. He says, but when the Helper comes, that's the Holy Spirit, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. That's what Jesus said concerning the Spirit. When I send him, he will bear witness about who I am. And the Spirit does indeed testify to us, does He not, Christian? Does He not, if you're a believer, the Spirit testifies to you that Jesus is indeed the Son of God? This is the internal, ongoing witness of the Holy Spirit to our hearts that makes us not only able to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but makes us willing to believe Jesus is the Son of God. We personally, as believers, know this witness of the Spirit of truth. He has testified to our hearts well. And He has done this to all of the people of God. So not only in the past tense, in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ did the Spirit testify to who Jesus was, but even now, to us, the Spirit testifies to who He is. Verse 7. For there are three that testify. The Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. Now John says... That the baptism, crucifixion, and Holy Spirit make up a threefold witness to the truth of the Jesus that John preaches. That's what he's saying. The Spirit, water, and Spirit, water, and blood make a threefold witness. John is building a case for the trustworthiness of faith in Jesus. He's building his case, and I say that because I believe that the mention of three witnesses here is a callback to the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 17 and 19, it is said that any charge brought against somebody must be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is a Jewish thing. John's Jewish. He's pulling back from Deuteronomy, I think. So what John's point in saying three witnesses, and they all three agree, John is saying that God himself has used the full measure of witnesses concerning Jesus. That's what he's saying. God Himself has has used the full measure of witnesses concerning Jesus. And this testimony is supremely trustworthy. That is to say, there is no excuse for a person to not place their faith in the Jesus that John has preached to us. Because God Almighty Himself has given a rock-solid Extreme testimony to Jesus. The full measure of witnesses have been laid out in Christ or, or to Christ by God. Right, and what a thought. Just consider this for a minute, Christian. I'd be comforted by this. God wants our confidence in his son to be so strong that he has testified. As much as he could, as much as he can, as much as he will. God has testified, which is what John goes on to say in verse 9. He makes it plain to us. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. So in verse 9, John begins to argue from the lesser to the greater. What he's saying is if, if we would listen to and believe the testimony of men concerning other men, which is what we do on a regular basis. Someone comes to you and says, hey, Steve did this. Okay, apparently Steve did it. If we believe the testimony of men concerning other men, then surely we would believe the testimony of God concerning his own son. We often don't even think twice about the testimony of, of, of men towards other men. We, we tend to believe them naturally. How much more should we believe the testimony of God concerning His Christ, concerning His Son? We would be fools to ignore the testimony of God. God's testimony is permanent and final. It is not something to be set or altered by neglect or tampering. I read a commentator who said this. One time, only one time in the course of world history, God appears as witness, speaks clearly, and gives proof and secure direction. And this was concerning His Son. So God the Father has testified through the Holy Spirit, through the baptism of Christ, through the crucifixion of Christ, but what's more than that, and, and I, I didn't want to let this go. This isn't directly implied in the text, but I, I couldn't get past this. This just kept coming to mind, and I, I wanted to share this with you. What's more than that, even with these witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, God the Father himself testified verbally to who Jesus is. Right? We see this at Christ's baptism. Right? The Holy Spirit descends upon Christ as He's coming out of the water and a voice from heaven speaks and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Father verbally spoke we see again at the, uh, the transfiguration of Christ where Jesus goes up on a mountain and He takes Peter, James, and John with Him. And on this mountain, the veil of Christ's flesh is removed and Christ's glory, His divinity, shines forth and His face shines brighter than the sun and His clothing is like lightning. And a voice from heaven speaks and says, This is My Son. Listen to Him. And then we see before the crucifixion of Christ, Jesus is praying And he says, Father, glorify yourself. And a voice from heaven speaks and says, I have glorified myself and I will do it again. Meaning, I will glorify myself in your crucifixion as you take my wrath and make propitiation for sinners, and I will be glorified in the salvation of my people. God himself has spoken. Through the spirit, the water, the blood, and even verbally, God has spoken. This testimony concerning Jesus is more sure than the sun rising in the morning. It's more sure than your next breath. God Himself has given testimony. And that testimony is that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But now as we, as we end our time, God... I want to encourage you with this. I don't have any application for you, really. I want to encourage you guys. We have... If you're like me, I used to be an atheist, and I used to have a crisis of faith on a regular basis. At least three or four times a year, I would wonder, is this true? Is this true, or have I just made myself feel better? Is this true? Know this, if you have weak... Faith, know this, you have great reason to wholly trust in the Jesus that John tells us about. You are no fool for having placed your faith in Christ. The world may call you foolish, Christian, but you are no fool. You have heeded the testimony of God. You've listened to Him. When he says, this is my son, listen to him, you've said, yes, I will. So continue to trust this Christ that John preaches. Renew your faith in him. Be resolved to trust him more. Know that God has not lied. And know that our confidence in his son is built on the solid rock of God's Word to us. There is no greater confidence for us than to look upon Christ with the eyes of faith and hear in our hearts, thus saith the Lord, this is His Son. There is no greater confidence for us. So let this testimony of God confirm and strengthen your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let this testimony of God have its intended effect on you of making you more bold and more confident so that you can say, I know in whom I have trusted. I know in whom I have believed. We end our time together reading the ninth verse of this passage. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this testimony that we have, that we have recorded in Your Word. Thank You for the ongoing testimony of the Holy Spirit to our spirits, that Jesus is indeed the Christ, that Jesus is indeed the Son of the living God. Lord, for the people that are here, I know some of us have weak faith often when we have crises of faith we ask ourselves, can it be true? Lord, help our unbelief. I pray that your testimony would speak to us that we could look upon the Christ of Scripture and say this must be God's Son. This must be the one who satisfied wrath for us. This must be the one who who obeyed in our place. God Himself has testified to it. Help us to heed Your testimony, Lord. Help us to listen to Your Son, to follow Him. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Strengthen us. But Lord, we do indeed thank You. that it's not about the strength of our faith, but the power of the object of our faith. Weak faith in a strong Christ is amazing. Worn down faith in a Christ who has conquered sin, Satan, and death for us is of great effect. So Lord, even in the midst of our weak faith, I thank You for, for providing us with a strong Savior who overcomes our doubts, who has reconciled us to you. But nevertheless, God, please increase our faith. Help us to believe your testimony and see it as sure and steady. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.